Hey, this is John, and you're listening to the Mosaic Young Adult Podcast. To learn more about Mosaic Young Adults, visit us online at thisismosaic.org forward slash young adults. We hope this podcast is simply part of a greater conversation you have with Jesus. Enjoy the message. The fourth century African theologian, St. Augustine, wrote, Always as a person loves, so he is. Do you love the earth? Then you are of the earth. Do you love God? Then you are of God. In other words, you are what you love. What Augustine saw to be true about humanity is that we are shaped most by the things that are around us and the things that have the closest proximity to shape us more deeply than others. See, when Rachel and I got married, my life became fundamentally different because that's just what happens when you share most of your waking hours with the person you love and have committed your life to loving. I was by status no longer a bachelor, but I was a husband. I am a husband. So that meant that the little things in my life began to change, like making sure the toilet seat was down all the time and learning that each pot and pan had different uses. I, you know, I just make chicken on whatever, right? Like whatever's available, but that's not true. But that also meant big things had to change in my life as well, like the color scheme of my wardrobe. I'm now more towards neutrals, whites, beige, and black. Apparently it's more slimming. Anyway, she didn't say that, but that's what I read. But other things like budgeting for furniture pieces that will only be used for the holidays and you gotta find a way to store them and hide them. These are the things that happen when you get married, but that's just the outside stuff. That's just the things that you do for the person you love. But, but see, the influences in our lives don't just shape our actions, but they shape our hearts. You see, as long as I've been married, it's, it's only been a few years now, but my love for Rachel has, and I can promise you, has been growing every day, even if it's just a little bit. My compassion for her when she is sick would grow and grow. And, and even God's desire for her to grow into the woman of God that, she, that he wants her to be is not just his desire for her, but has become the desire of my heart as her husband. You see, who I am as her husband has been shaped by the person I love most, which is Rachel. So I'm curious then, what shapes the life of a Christian? What shapes and directs your life? See, tonight we'll be in the book of James. And as a way of reminder, James is writing this letter to Jewish Christians who are facing persecution. Bless you. This persecution is coming partly because of their faith in Jesus. And it's also happening because societally, the rich and powerful, whether it be Romans or Jews, are taking advantage of the poor and defenseless, some of which are Jewish Christians. And so what's happening um, for the people of James is, is these rich landlords would, would begin to withhold daily wages from the Jewish Christians and other poor families. And, and this made their lives horrible because they would work the farms of the rich and powerful, but then they couldn't get money to buy the things that they needed, like food. So as a result, the people in these communities would get angry. <laughs> they, they thought the only way to get justice was through violence. So they wanted to incite a revolt. 
And so these Jews and these poor people, they would begin to share these thoughts and voice them to everyone, including these Jewish Christians. So they would say things like, come, come with us and let's get justice. Let's give the Romans what they deserve. Down with the 1% to hell with Rome. But then you'd have these Roman officials on the other end saying, listen, you peasants, you know, without our protection, foreign nations would pillage your homes and take your women and children and kill your men. I mean, honestly, poverty is better than death, so you ought to just shut up. And then you'd have people like James and the apostles and other Christians saying, listen, both the Romans and these poor Jews are wrong because the way of Jesus is not of this world and, and the kingdom of God will be brought to this world, not by violence, but by the finished work of Jesus. And so James is, is speaking to these people because he's concerned that these Christians are going to abandon the way of Jesus because they're going to give ear and be shaped by the voices of their culture and their community. You know, we now have a generation of Christians that have more voices directed their way than any generation in the past. You and I are being formed constantly through the news updates on our phones, the sermon clips on our Instagrams, the, the political commentator on podcasts, the songs on Spotify, the books that we read, the family we're born into, the people we date, and now even the type of therapist we go to. But you know, what's most ironic is that for all the worldly wisdom and knowledge that we have at our fingertips, we are a people that have never felt more lost or more displaced. You just don't know what the heck to do. And when we have this many voices competing for our hearts and our minds, our vision of the Christian life becomes muddied because we keep following and being shaped by something that's not Jesus. And you have people who say, listen, you can't be a Christian and be a Democrat. And then you have other voices that say, you can't be a Christian and be a Republican. And then you have people or men who, who don't wanna be called simps. And they say, listen, you gotta follow Joe Rogan and the red pill community because they have the roadmap for true masculinity. And then you have the other side saying, that's nothing but toxic masculinity. And then you have celebrities and TikTok influencers saying that feminism is the only way for women to thrive in this world because much like Rachel Zegler said about Snow White not needing a man, it's not 1937. But then you have other women who say, listen, feminism is broken because, the, the, because it turns out the desire for equality has been replaced with the belief that men are unnecessary to societal existence. So who are you supposed to listen to? Who? But it doesn't even end there. Because this frenzy, what it's done is not that it's just muddied the waters and confused us. What it's caused in us as a generation of young adults is to become anti-authoritarian. We don't want to listen to anybody who claims to be an expert. We don't want to listen to any authority that resides outside of ourselves. Like the idea that so-called experts can tell me what to do with my life and my body and my heart and my love is ridiculous because no one can even agree on anything. But more than that, we look at the world around us and it's on fire. And this is the world that our parents' generation handed over to us. So the thought becomes that if our parents' generation are the ones who got us into this mess, then why in the world would we listen to them? And when you don't know who to turn to or who to listen to and who to believe, where else can you turn 
than to yourself. See, what seems to shape our Christian faith more than anything else, it seems, is our own thoughts and our emotions. If I think it, it must be true. If I feel it, I must obey it. So all of these conflicting, competing voices seek to shape your heart and mind, but what will shape the life of the Christian? What will shape your life? Let's turn back to the text for tonight. James chapter one, read with me verses 19 through 21. Knowing this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So James begins with no light words. See, he's talking again to people who are rightfully angry. I mean, they're working for nothing. Like, I don't know if you've ever had a boss or a manager who just makes your life a living, you know, just grinds your gears. And it's that, but 10 times worse in this circumstance because these Jewish Christians are being exploited and there is no law in place that will give them justice. They can't just like go up and sign up for a credit card and maybe get, get into debt for a little bit and pay it off as they go. No, without these daily wages, they're gonna go home empty-handed to their family and they will starve. And, but then they can only result and keep coming back to these farms for work because where else are they to go to? So they just become angry and disappointed. And James says to that circumstance, he says, don't get angry. Well, he says, be slow to anger. In fact, he says, be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to anger. Now, if you've ever been ticked off by somebody, are these natural responses? No. But the reason that James is calling for them to resist anger is because he's not referring to anger as an emotion. Like we, can, we can think that he's just talking about don't be angry as an emotion. No, it's okay for you to experience anger from time to time. In fact, it's good for you to experience anger at injustice. That's what's happening here. There's injustice happening to the Jewish Christians. So he's not saying don't be angry about that. What he's saying is the anger that you're experiencing is the kind of anger that leads to violent bloodshed. Remember, these are, there are Jews out there who, and other impoverished community members who are wanting to revolt and violently take back the lands. And James tells them not to do that for two reasons. One, because the wrath of man does not produce the, the righteousness of God. And two, because Christians have a different authority over their lives than the world does. So he says here, right, he says, do not be angry or to be slow to anger for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now that phrase, righteousness of God, what it means is God intended results. So he says here, the anger of man does not produce God intended results. Now in the case of, the, of, of James's audience, what he's saying is if you want to experience the justice of God in your life, if you want justice to be seen here, you will not be able to do it by getting violent revolts on the Romans and rich Jews. It just won't happen that way because ungodly actions don't lead to godly results. Y'all hear that? You can't get the ways of God without following the way of God. You just don't, there's nowhere else in life where you get that. 
So instead, James teaches them verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save yourselves. So what he's saying to them is, listen, listen, I know you're angry and you have every right to be angry. There is injustice being done here, but there is something that you want to happen. There is, there is a God intended result in which you want to see, but I'm telling you, it's not gonna happen through ungodly means. So I want you to get rid of and, get, and, and break ties with anything in your life that resembles the previous life you used to live before you followed Jesus. He's telling them to reject the voices of violence, of the voices of their culture, of the Roman Empire, and even their own. He's actually even telling them to silence their emotions because that is not what directs the life of the Christian. It's not what directs it. See, what directs the life of the Christian and serves as the authority over our lives is the word of God. It's the word of God. This is why James says we are to submit. What does he say here? Receive with meekness the implanted word. He's saying we are to submit and surrendered to the implanted word. Now this, what he means by implanted word, he's saying the word of God. Because it is the word of God that reveals to humanity the story of God. It is the story of a good God who came to save a people plagued by death. It is the word of God that reveals the good news of Jesus. It's the gospel. The implanted word is the gospel. And the gospel, mind you what it says here at the end of verse 21, it is the implanted word which is able to what? Save your souls. The gospel is what brought us to life. It is the thing that helps us follow after Jesus, the one who set us free from death and darkness. So in our life, if you have any confusion about what gives direction to our life, what we submit to and what we surrender to, it is the gospel. It is to the life, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And because it is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in which brought you from death to life, we are now called to deny our emotional instincts and to reject the voices that are coming from the culture because God's word is our new authority. This is the only way for us to experience the intended results of God in our lives. And what is God's intended result. What is God's desire for you? Is that you would have the life of Jesus. But we cannot get the life of Jesus and the way of Jesus if we give our hearts and our minds to the voices of the world. And this is why James says that our relationship with God's word goes beyond just receiving and listening to it. It requires a certain kind of response from us. Let's continue. Verse 22 through 25, read it with me. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So when James says to hear 
and to do the word of God. He's actually clarifying more in depth what the word is. Because he says it multiple times. He says the implanted word, be doers of the word, hearers of the word. And then in verse 25, he, this is what he calls the word. He calls the word the perfect law, the law of liberty. And what the word is, is the, because you have to remember, Let me see, just trying to get this accurate. Hold on, hold on. Give me a second. Here it is. The Old Testament people had access to this part. This is the Old Testament. This is all they had. In fact, it's not like they even had it like in book form. This all yet had to be written because James was actually the first book of the, of the New Testament to be written. And so what he's saying to them is, listen, you're not just to hear the gospel. I mean, like, like because when, when the apostles went out in the first century church, they would just tell them about the gospel. He would tell them, Jesus died for you, and now you're to repent and follow after Jesus because you're, sin, you're dead in your sin. So turn from sin and turn to life. Turn to Jesus. That's all they had to go for them. And they would go back and turn to the Old Testament, but there was no future uh, de definitions and terminologies for them yet. So all they had was when they said, be doers of the word, is that you are to do everything that the Old Testament says in light of the gospel. See, this is important for us as young adults to, to, to just take a moment to think about because when we, often what will happen is we, we, we like the New Testament a lot, right? Like the New Testament just sounds really nice. Like Jesus just sounds so nice and chill and cool. And like, I can follow after that. But, but the other stuff, the, the other commands in the Old Testament, like that's a real buzzkill. Like Jesus, that doesn't sound like a fun God. That sounds like a really pissed off God. And I don't know if I can follow that guy, but I can follow the nice guy, Jesus. You know, he wore chacos pretty much, you know? Like I can follow after that guy. He seems pretty chill. And what James says is, no, 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 no. You, you don't get to pick and choose what parts of the Bible you want to follow. <laughs> you don't get to pick and choose the parts that you like. In fact, I forget exactly how Tim Keller says it, but he, he says it much better than I do, so I'm gonna butcher this. But he says, if, if you follow a God who never disagrees with you, it's more likely that you worship yourself and not the God of the Bible. It's really easy to follow Jesus when he says all the things that you like that he says. I love you. You're my beloved. I died for you. I'll be with you forever. That part we like. But the part that says you gotta die to your sin. The part that says that you have to, to separate yourself from the things of this world. That there, there, there's, a, there's a life that you have to live that is completely different from the world. That part we don't like. And he says, no, you don't get to define the parts of the Bible that you want to follow. We are to follow all of it. And he provides this imagery. He says here, and uh, oh, I lost my place because I was trying to make a point with the thing. Well, he makes his analogy. Come on. I promise I know I'm talking about. Here, <laughs> got it. He says here, verse 23, for everyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer. He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. Now, when we think about mirrors, we think, you know, just 
the, the mirrors that we have now, right? Like you can go to the bathroom and you can see there's a mirror there. You have it in your car. Everywhere's a mirror, okay? Everywhere you can find a mirror. That's not the way the mirrors worked in the ancient times. It, you couldn't just have one and it reflected perfectly. In fact, the mirrors in the ancient world were, very, were made with different materials. And so when you looked at them, like you couldn't really accurately see your reflection. And it's, which is ironic because they still used it for like, you know, doing makeup and fixing their face. And so they would look intently into the mirror because they had to, because they had to like, figure out what, do I got stuff on my teeth? Like, it, like, do I not look all jacked up? Does my hair look okay? Like, I gotta impress this lady or I gotta impress this dude. Like, I gotta make sure. And, and the reality is not everyone even had mirrors, so they couldn't even really often look at themselves in the mirror. And so what James is saying here is like, listen, when you read the word of God, it's gonna say some really hard things about who you are and the, and, and what, or what, the status of your heart. And it's like, and, and if you look at the mirror like this, where you look at the mirror and you look at it and you go, oh yeah, I see exactly how I am. I'm pretty jacked up. I got to fix this. And then you go and then you don't, like, have you ever gone, like you would never go on a date and not have your makeup done well, I would imagine. Or you would never go on a date and have your zipper be down. No, you probably zipper up. Like you, like you, you would just do these normal things. Like it makes sense. If there's something wrong in your reflection, you go and take care of it. And he says, listen, the word of God reveals exactly what's wrong in your heart. It shows the brokenness and the sin that's there. And when we just listen to it and not actually enact it, what we're saying is nothing needs to be fixed in us. We're fine just as we are. And so what we do as a generation is that we begin to ignore God's word. We Pick the pieces that we like and ignore the ones that we don't. Is it any wonder then that even, it isn't just that the world is confused, but the Christians are confused because they don't even know what they believe. In fact, they probably don't know. And some of us, and I know there are times even in my heart, I don't know the God that I worship sometimes because there are, I'm tempted to ignore what the word tells me about who I am and who God is. But this is a, this is a, a phenomenon that is not known to humankind. You see, in the Old Testament, they had this thing called the Shema. So you can find it in Deuteronomy chapter six. And the Shema essentially was this, this summary statement that the Israelites were to, to repeat and recite to themselves. That they were to remember who God is, what he's done for them and who they are in response. I'm gonna read it for you. The Shema begins like this. Verse four, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and you are full, then 
then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the God of slave, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. It's a long passage, but what he's getting at is this: see, to hear when he says to hear, hear, O Israel. We think about it as what? Just listen. In the Hebrew, that's not what it means. To hear means to listen and to obey. And what are they listening and obeying to? God's word. And so for the Old Testament Israelites, for the Old Testament people of God, what they understood was that God's word was meant to shape their whole entire life. See, Moses was writing to Israel that God's word would shape their hearts, their families, their daily activities, their communities. Ultimately, what he's saying is that God would shape you more into the image of God. And it's for this reason that the Old Testament people had a high regard for God's word. They didn't pick and choose. It doesn't mean that they followed it 100% accurately all the time, but they knew that it was worth following. Because they understood that. See, in Genesis, what you see is that God's word is what formed everything that we know into existence. He, by his word and by his wisdom, he spoke creation to existence. As you read throughout the rest of Genesis and the lives of the patriarchs, every single patriarch, every single person, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of them, their whole life, every time they moved, it was because God told them to do it. When you read the life of Abraham, it's crazy. He would move from the land of Ur to the land of Canaan, thousands of miles away for a promise that he would even see. But he did it because he knew that he could trust the word of God, the voice of God. And then in Exodus, what you see is God's word. He declares that he would set his people free from Egypt. And later on, God would write down his word as the law. And this would serve as a distinctive feature for all of Israel. I don't know if you knew this, but all the kings of Israel, starting from David and continuing on, actually from Saul and on, every single king of Israel would have to write the Old Testament, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He'd have to copy word for word in a little book. He'd take a book, he would the, whatever the, I don't know the process. I didn't think about it too much when I was thinking about this, but there was a process where he would have to word by word carve onto the papyrus the words of of God. And then after writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, he would take this word and then he would study and meditate it every day because he recognized that God's word is meant to be the directive for himself and for all the people of God. So literally the word of God would be ingrained into the king's life that it would seep into his mind and into his fingertips. And in the, in the Old Testament, there were also these people called prophets and they were selected by God and they were called to communicate God's word accurately. They only spoke what God told them to say and they were, they were, they were often hard words that God wanted Israel to hear. And as a result, prophets often lived difficult lives. But even then, even though they lived difficult lives, even though people tried to kill them, they only spoke the words that God gave them, even if it cost them their life. What is my point here? Is that God's word was so serious so important to the Old Testament people because they knew that it came from God and that God's word held power. They heard it and they obeyed it. 
It shaped their every action and thought. But more than that, it shaped their hearts. See, Christianity is not behavior modification. It's not about do better, be better. God is after something far more important than just your actions. He's after your heart. This is what he says again in the Shema itself, verses five and six. You shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart. Not a, not a fragment, not piece of it, not most of it, not 99% of it, not 99.9, but every single ounce of your heart. And then he says in verse six, and these words, his law, the word of God, I command you today shall be on your heart. God's word is meant to shape our lives and our hearts. Because whatever has authority over you has the power to shape you. If you give authority to the voices of the world, you will be shaped into the image of the world. If you give authority to the voice and word of God, you will be shaped more into the image of God. The only way. So what does a life shaped by God's word look like? Let's turn back to James. Last two verses. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. See, when we, when we see this word religious or religion, often what you hear about Christianity is what? Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I probably shouldn't say it like that because I'm giving away how I feel about it. I disagree. <laughs> because the way that James uses this word religion is not empty religion. It's not empty actions, empty faith. It, what he says, those who are, he says, if anyone thinks he's religious, what he's saying about religious, if anyone thinks he is devoted to God with his whole heart in his whole being, but he does not bridle his tongue, this person's devotion to God is worthless. And so what he's saying here is, it is very easy for the Christian to talk the talk, but it's very different for you to do the walking. Right? How many Christians do we know? How many times are, here's the real question. How many times are we the Christian that does the talking, but not the walking? We know the words and we sound really holy, even in our prayer circles, even in our prayer time. Like sometimes it's not even with each other. Sometimes you go to God being like, oh, holy father in heaven, you love me so much and you've justified me and you've glorified me and you've done all the eyes, me's and all these things and Lord, and, and, and you try to sound holy to God, but your heart's not in it. You're not actually living out anything he's commanded you to do. And James says that, that devotion to God is worthless because it's not real devotion. What he's saying is that you are embarking in empty practices and empty faith. Instead, this is what he says. Devotion to Jesus, devotion to God that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You see, when we view our Christian faith simply as a relationship, 
What we can do is we say the grace of God is sufficient, which it is for salvation. Absolutely. Don't hear any other, like you are saved by faith through grace in the works of God for you, not through your own works. But what can happen sometimes is that you bank so much on the grace of God that you think you have to do nothing else. It's like, okay, God loves me just as I am, right? You'll hear that. God loves you just exactly as you are. But the reality is that God loves you so much that he won't leave you as you are. He wants to do a fundamental change in your heart. He wants to do a fundamental change in the entire way of your living because your former life was a life of death. Your former life, here's what it says. It says the person who, who, who talks to talk and not walks to walk deceives his heart. That word for deceive means to indulge yourself. So your previous life, all you ever did was indulge yourself, your desires, your sins, everything, your passions of your flesh. That is what you indulged in. But God says, no, that is not the way my people are to follow. The people of God are not meant to indulge themselves, but are now to serve God with all love and all focus and then love the people that God loves. So may we not walk the walk, may we walk the walk and talk the talk. See, let's be honest. What are Christians known for? We got the, you got the rise and fall of Mars Hill. You got that Hillsong documentary. You have these articles in the New York Times talking about Carl Lentz doing this, that, and other. You, the, the image of the church does not look too great today. But we can't look at them and be like, that's them. When we ourselves, in our lives, and in our hearts, we indulge ourselves and we practice an empty and fake faith. And so what he says here is a religion that is pure and undefiled is those who visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now I wanna clarify, this doesn't mean that if you don't visit orphans and widows, you're not a Christian. He's giving the example to the, James is talking to a context. And there are people in their context who are poor, even poorer than the regular Jewish Christian. And it's the orphan and the widow because who, what, what, who's gonna support the orphan if the parent is not around? And there's also a patriarchal society. So if the wife doesn't have a husband, there ain't a man to bring home the bread. So neither the widow nor the orphan has a way to make it. And so the people of God are to visit those who are in affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And this is where I want to drive us to, young adults, okay? This call to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, or the best way to put it, is to visit the marginalized and the outcast. This is our call. The call is to love people that make you uncomfortable. Do you hear me? The gospel did not come to beautiful diamond model people. The gospel came to you and to me in our mess. 
It came to us in the most ugly of our circumstances. We are uncomfortable people to love. We are broken and messy and selfish and indulgent human beings. We are hard to love. And yet these are the people that God came to through his son with the gospel. For as long as there is human suffering, the church is called to come to the aid of those who are defenseless and marginalized. For this is what Jesus did and does for us. See, the word of God doesn't, isn't just our authority. The word of God doesn't just shape our hearts. But the question is, what does it shape it to be? It shapes it into the heart of Jesus. See, caring for the needy and pursuing holiness were major marks of the life of Jesus. See, Jesus calls this the narrow path in Matthew 7. To be honest, the way of Jesus, to follow after Jesus is not a wide path, but a narrow one that is difficult. But it's the one that we are meant to call, that meant to follow, to care for those who are uncomfortable and to pursue holiness, which means to reject the ways of the world. This is the life and heart we are to obey and reflect. See, God's word molds our hearts to reflect the heart of Jesus. That is the point of God's word in our lives. But you might be thinking then, Ms. Caesar, I thought you told me this isn't about being better and doing better, and that's true. Because you still have all these voices you have to siphon through. You have all these influences that are seeking your attention and your affection. These all these voices around us. And sometimes we mess up. Sometimes you do give in to the wrong voices. Sometimes you mistake God's voice for another voice. Sometimes you don't hear the voice of God. Sometimes you just ignore the word of God and you think, ah, this is all that's for me. And Satan would love for you to think that. Satan would love for you to think that there's no way for you to be able to follow God and to follow his word, but that's not true. Here is what is true. God's word became flesh. John chapter one says that the word of God came to dwell with us. It is Jesus, the incarnate word of God. God is the fullness of God's word. All of God's word directs us to the person of Jesus. And it is this Jesus that begins to change and transform our hearts. The prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament says this in Ezekiel 36, 26. And he says, I will give, talking about God, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh flesh and give you a heart, sorry, I give you, a, remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What he's saying is I will give you a new heart, not to love the things of this world, not to, not to be uh, in the things of death, but to follow after the way of Jesus. And then he says this in verse 27 of that same chapter, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful, be careful to obey my rules, that he will give you the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, that God himself will dwell in you and empower you to follow the ways of God because you can't do it on your own. None of us can follow the word of God in our own strength. And we can follow God's word because we have a new heart that is bent towards God and we have the Holy Spirit that gives us strength to follow his ways. And that is good news. That is good news. Because it means that we can finally not just follow Jesus like he's some teacher, but follow Jesus as he's meant to be followed 
as the Lord and Savior over our hearts and life. So my question to you as we finish here is what happens when we have a people devoted to God through obedience to his word? Before I answer that question, I just, I wanna make this really practical. First, listen, you can't follow God's word if you ain't in it, right? This is simple, right? Like you just, you need to open this thing and some of your Bibles are dusty. I don't mean to be like, I'm just, it is, okay? And this is not to be shameful, truthfully. So here's some practical next steps I wanna give to us. One, we have a Bible study here at Mosaic every Tuesday night and Wednesday morning. We're studying through the, through the book of Hebrews and I would encourage you, get in that. It will teach you how to, if you feel like, ah, oh, God's word is so confusing. I don't know how to study it. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to interact with it. Come to a Bible study. Be with other fellow students of God's word as they seek to pursue and obey, not just to listen, but to obey to God's word. And then if you want in your own time, here's some resources for you. Um, you can buy a good study Bible that'll help make sense of it. There's some books here. I just can just take, take out your phone, take a picture of this, truthfully. Like if, like if you are not in the word daily, like, um, again, not a judgment thing. Like I'm just, I'm just saying, if you're not in it and because you're confused or feel intimidated, take a picture of these and buy one of, the, buy one of two of these things. Actually, you see that Woman of the Word book by Jen Wilkin? That ain't just for women, man. That is one of the best books on how to study the Bible that I've read in my entire life. It should just be people of the word. That's what it should be. But I think she just sold it. I don't know why she only sold it to women, but I'm just telling you, I read it and I loved it. It was amazing. And then you know what? If, you're not, if, you, if you want something more structured or something a little bit, like you're not worried about how to study the God's word, but you, you want an excuse or reason, something to help you be in God's word daily, do a Bible in a year plan. Bible in six months, Bible in three months. Like, how about this? We're in September. Why don't you just dedicate to this, the rest of this, this year to reading the Bible? Get God's word inside of you, so deep in your bones, just like the kings had it in, in them deeply, in, rooted in them. May we, as God's people, have God's word deep within us. There's this thing called the Bible recap. It's on, it's on Safari. You can just Google it. It's on the Bible app. And literally what it does, it walks you day by day uh, through these passages and then it gives you a teaching on it. So it helps explain the maybe some confusing parts of it. There is, listen, we have an abundance of resources in the Western world to be in God's word. So be in it, okay? Now here's the fun part. What happens when we do this? What happens when we're in the word every day? What happens when we meditate on his word? What happens when we eat and and, and meditate and have his word be deeply rooted in us? This is what happens. We become a community that is countercultural to the world. We, as a community, this place on Thursday nights will become a place of transformation because we will be the aroma of Christ because instead of following the world's ways, instead of following the ways of death, we begin to follow the ways of life and the ways of life become so true and, 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 double, and, and second nature to who we are that every person that steps into this space, we're like, you want to experience life? Let me show you life. Let me show you the one who has life. Let me show you the word of life. Let me give you life. That is what people are craving They're not craving better teaching from Caesar. They're not craving a better worship experience to the worship leader. They're craving for an encounter with God. And this shows you how to encounter him. Every page from Genesis 1-1 to to Revelation chapter 22 is all about how you can have a deep encounter with God. That's what this place can be. 
And as we follow after Jesus, we begin to be like Jesus. So what that means is that we start to care for those in need, not just the orphans and the widows, although Mosaic does care for foster families very well. And we care about orphans and we send money to places like Ethiopia. But who are the marginalized in our community right now? In the city of Orlando, who are the marginalized and those in need? It's the LGBTQIA plus community. It's the immigrants. It's the racial outcasts. It's these people that, that the message of the gospel is meant to reach. But do you know who will reach them? You. You. And what better thing can you offer them than the living word of God? Not your ideas and your opinions, but with a roadmap on how to encounter God. And then finally, we will pursue holiness just like Jesus did, where we will separate ourselves from sin, we'll consecrate ourselves and set ourselves apart only for the worship and devotion of God himself. And this all leads to one reality. And this is what excited me. Like I, as much as I love the word of God, as much as I loved studying this, as much as I've, I've, I've hounded down on how important the word of God is, when a people is committed to being obedient to the direction and shape of God and shaped by the heart of Jesus, one thing will happen in Winter Garden. A spiritual revival will break out. A spiritual revival will break out because Jesus turned the whole world upside down by loving the marginalized and pursuing the Father. And he, sh and he shook the whole world. He shook the whole world. So it's not just about memorizing Genesis 1-1. It's not about having Jesus be your bumper sticker. It's not about having a Bible verse on your Instagram bio. It's about getting God's word so deep in your bones that the presence of God falls in the spaces you are and revival of dead people, spiritually dead people that are in Orlando would come to life. I just wanna finish with this quote by Charles Finney, the father of revivalism. And God used him to lead the second great awakening in America. And I pray that we will have another one in this generation. It says this, a revival is nothing, nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. May we, as young adults, may revival start here with our obedience to the word of God. Let's pray. Thanks again for spending some time with us on the Mosaic Young Adults podcast. Our hope for you is that Jesus will use this message you just received and direct your heart completely towards him. If you wanna hear more messages like this one, please feel free to check out our past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes.